Welcome to the Southern Alchemy Wellness Podcast. Southern Alchemy Wellness is a holistic wellness space and retail store devoted to the support of healthy living in the physical and virtual community. Our physical space is located at 4819 East Bush Boulevard, Suite 104. We hope you'll come and see us here. I'm your host, Tracy Person. And I am Darren Person, your co-host, and this is the Alchemy of Wellness podcast. Today, we're discussing the need to make space for grief in our lives and how to begin the process of healing. Our guest today is cultural anthropologist, Jillian Maris-Jones. Maris is an avid traveler, storyteller, and climate activist. We know and love her as our spiritual goddaughter. Thank y'all so much for having me today. As Tracy mentioned, my name is Jillian Maris Jones, and I am a lover of learning. And this process of experiencing grief over the course of my life has really informed the way in which I go about my work as an anthropologist and engage with different communities around the world. Awesome. Welcome, Maris. I don't usually default to Wikipedia to find my definitions of words, but when I was looking for a definition of the word grief, I looked at Webster, I I looked at a couple of places, Britannica, Um, the best, most holistic definition that I could find was the Wikipedia one. Grief is the response to loss, particularly to the loss of someone or some living thing that has died, to which a bond or affection was formed. Although conventionally focused on the emotional response to loss, grief also has physical, cognitive, behavioral, social, cultural, spiritual, and philosophical dimensions. I thought this was a really important episode to record because I just lost my father, James Albert Malone. I thought that maybe this was too soon to do this podcast, but I think in light of the guests that I have here today and um, what my husband and I and my family are experiencing, this was very appropriate. He was an amazing father, an amazing husband. He taught me so much about work and life and love. I could go on forever about how amazing he was, but I'm not. I'm going to hand this over to Maris. As I mentioned, grief is something that I have been familiar with throughout my life. I remember the first person that I lost in my childhood at four years old. I lost my Uncle Val, one of my mother's eldest brother. And I remember the process of coming together in order to release. I remember carrying his ashes on the plane from New Orleans to the Bahamas, where my mother is from. And I remember carrying Uncle Val the present. That was how I referred to him. And I felt so connected. Mm. I felt trusted by my family, by my mother, who allowed me, a small child, to hold on to my uncle while I was sitting in the plane chair. But that was my first time experiencing grief from the loss of someone in my family. Over the course of my life, I've lost three of my aunts. I lost my only brother during Hurricane Katrina, which led me to think about the concept of climate grief and pursue my work in climate 
ethnography and become a cultural anthropologist and to think about what it means to survive past these losses and grief. In holding space for that grief in my work, the loss of my brother brought me to my anthropological work. And it was the support of my family that encouraged me to continue doing that work. But what brings me here today with you, Tracy, is because in the time when we met, I was in the most activated part of my grief because I had just lost my father, Morris Jones Jr. And he passed away on the last day of 2022. Morris Jones Jr. knew how to make an exit. (laughs) (laughs) And losing my father, who had been with me for the entirety of my life, my champion, my titan, my supporter, it was unlike any of the other griefs I had ever experienced before. I have experienced the, the grief of losing the home that I knew in my entire childhood, the loss of my brother, the loss of aunts and uncles and grandparents, the loss of who I thought I was as I was becoming who I am today. These are all forms of grief, but nothing measured up to the loss that I am currently navigating and the grief that I am experiencing. And so having the opportunity to be in conversation with someone who is also navigating that process, who I met immediately following in a space of learning, in the space of doing my anthropological research and learning about plant sisters and how our relationship to grief can also be explored through our relationship to plants and ancestral knowledge and wisdom. If I did not have a relationship with my father and my family who have gone on to be in the ancestral realm, how would I know that this is the work that I am being called to do right now? Mm. How do I maintain that relationship? My grief has shaped me in profound ways that I don't even think I've fully begun to conceptualize. But I know that the lessons and teachings that have come from that space, that's something that I meant to share. Ashe. Darren, how are you coming to this conversation about grief today? Well, one of the things I'm going to do is um, we're going to kind of observe some of the funereal practices still here in the West, and also how that's affected by this renaissance of uh, spirituality that we're experiencing now. Western practices are still kind of dominated by Judeo-Christian methods, uh, where you have a priest or a pastor that administers the service. The idea is that the priest or the pastor has the authority to help you to pass on into heaven's gates. Um, The services are usually focused more around the idea of loss and mourning and grieving of the departed. Um, Also, it's interesting to to note that the body of the deceased is somewhat intact in order for it to be reunited with the spirit during the second coming. So you notice that in, in a lot of practices, the bodies are embalmed, they are, you know, put in the coffin, put in the casket for that belief. Usually the clothing is is in black or dark colors. And uh, as a result of the age of grave robbing, uh, elaborate burial systems have been created, such as tombs and crypts and stuff, not only to protect the body of the departed, but also to protect their possessions uh, that is usually buried with them. Also, these systems were also used to display the status 
of the departed. So you will see very elaborate tombs, very elaborate crypts. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is that our new spiritual renaissance is making changes towards that. In particular, the way that we celebrate the transition of the departed. Departed is not gone. The, the departed has moved on. And we don't like to use the term, you know, that they're passing on, but they're homecoming. You know, they're transitioning, that the spirit goes on and lives on. And so that is creating a whole different paradigm of feeling and emotion from sadness and mourning to one of celebration. We're celebrating this person's life. We're saddened by the fact that they're no longer going to be with us. But we're also celebrating that they're going to be with other loved ones that have passed before them, that they're reuniting with them and so forth. Also, there's a movement going away from keeping the body intact. More uh, people that are going towards the practice of cremation, as Maris just mentioned. Uh, there's also interesting alternatives where people are being buried with trees and tree pods so that their spirit can live within the trees, especially any fruit trees, so that their spirit and their essence is coming forth in the fruit that the tree bears. And I think this is something interesting to look at in this new age of spiritualism, that these alternative methods are available. And as a result, it gives the people that are left behind a sense of positivity, a sense of hope that death is not just the end, it's the beginning into a bigger and more adventurous afterlife, that there is an afterlife and that the spirit of those people that have departed are always going to be with us. So we're going to celebrate their life. We're also going to create and set up our ancestor altars to celebrate every chance that we get so that this whole sense of finality is not a part of the funereal practice. Yeah, you're, you're definitely making me think about the ways in which melanated people in the South have come together to have these joyous funeral practices, even as we're crying, even as, you know, there's wailing, um, there's also dancing and eating as a really big part of how we celebrate that home going. Um, I know for me, I'm still, talking to my father as though he's still here. Um, and some people would say that's because it's not real to me yet. Like he just uh, physically left about a week ago, but my mother left two years ago and I'm still talking to her and talking about her um, as though she's still here. I'm feeling them so much like a force in my life. And so because my parents were community servants and because they were educators, um, some ways that I'm choosing to show up that I think are surprising to those around me is I continued to work. Continued to work because my work was about the community, but my parents' work was so much about the community. Um, they were all about service. So it didn't even occur to me to not be here on the days that I felt well. On the days that I don't feel well, um, I'm learning that it's important for me to lay down, take time. Yeah. Uh, and I talked about uh, Maris as my spiritual goddaughter. Like she comes to me to, um, you know, to enrich her life um, and elevate herself spiritually. We also talk about like holistic herbal things. 
Um, but her understanding that I had just lost my father, but I was still going on, but allowing me that space to say, hey, you know, you show up how you show up and you can lay down if you want to, because I kind of get how this goes. Like you're taking it one day at a time. You might feel fine today, but you may not feel fine tomorrow, or you might feel fine in the morning, an hour from now. You might, you, you, you might could, right? <laughs> you, you might could fall into the pit. And um, so I, I just wanted to take that talk about the West and the funereal practices that you brought up, Darren, to talk about like, there are so many different cultural ways yeah. that we can um, approach this grieving process. And um, it's so personal in terms of how each of us has our relationship and sees uh, death and, and culture and, and um, you know, I, I'm just yeah. in that place. Yeah, it's almost safe to say that, you know, anything that was a deviation from what I just described as far as the funeral practices was always looked upon as taboo. Because I remember growing up, the idea of cremation was like, oh, you, you don't yeah. talk about that. That's, And I, I think that now it's a positive step towards inviting a more broader sense of how to deal with grief and how we deal with the passing of our loved ones. Especially dealing with climate change. So yes. I'm going to throw it to you, Mary, <laughs> yeah, and talk about like how you're choosing to show up in your grief journey and you know yeah. the choices that you made. I, I think for me, how I've been showing up in my grief journey has a lot to do with the cultural practices that I have been embedded in since my childhood largely because of my father. Um, my father was born and raised in New Orleans and he ensured that I was also born and raised in New Orleans. <laughs> um, and in New Orleans, we have a practice of jazz funerals. Mm. And my father, to quote my sister, Gianni Marissa Jones, my father was a writer with light. My mm. father was a griot photographer. Mm. He was a storyteller who used images as a way to do that. And one of the, and my father was also a businessman who ensured that his children had those skills as well as the photography skills. He trained us alongside him. And one of the most profound experiences that I repeatedly had with my father was photographing jazz funerals in New Orleans. Mm, nice. Interesting. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, a jazz funeral is a celebration of life typically for a person who has lived a full life in the city of new orleans that is respected by their community and is deeply embedded in the historical and cultural practices of our community and a jazz funeral like any other funeral is is a space where people come together to celebrate the life of the departed but that doesn't just end at the church service. That continues onto a second line. Mm. And a second line is when everybody walks, processes out of the church into the streets to the sounds of a dirge. A dirge is a mournful song. Mm. And usually at the second line, there is a band that plays the dirge. Mm. Um, and what begins as a mournful trudge through this, the streets eventually transforms into a celebratory 
type of music, yeah. where there is dancing, yeah. where there are people shouting, where there are people shouting from the street, <laughs> which is what happened at my daddy's uh, jazz funeral. We had a memorial service for him and my father was cremated. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember at one of the jazz funerals, I helped document with my dad that there was a woman who had lost her son was standing on top of her son's casket in the street dancing like she was surfing on that casket. Mm. Wow. But my parents had always said that we would be cremated as a family. Mm -hmm. And so my sister held my daddy in his little poplar box Mm -hmm. and we walked him around the block and we danced with him around the block. We had the Mardi Gras Indians standing guard during the church service different aspects of our culture, where we come from, who we are as a people, was embedded in that practice of how we were grieving collectively. Can you say a little more about the Mardi Gras Indians for those who don't know? The Mardi Gras Indians are a masking tradition, primarily of Afro descendants in the city of New Orleans, who also may or may not have ties to indigenous groups um, in land currently referred to as Louisiana. It is an amalgamation of cultural traditions that is a celebration of beauty and of of attention to detail and lineage as well. Um, Mardi Gras Indians tend to be, folks who mask as Indians tend to be together in a family and are taught generation to generation how to build their suits and design their suits. Um, And they come out on Mardi Gras Day and on Super Sunday in New Orleans it's sort of like a competition to see who's prettier, who took the time <laughs> mm-hmm. to really convey a message through the suit that they created. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different tribe, different Mardi Gras Indian tribes that exist within the city. So when they come out for funerals, do they have to have known the deceased or are they just called upon to do this work because because it is like space holding for whoever the deceased is. Not everybody gets Mardi Gras Indians at their funeral. My father had Mardi Gras Indians present at his funeral because he was a dedicated photographer of the Mm -hmm. Mardi Gras Indians and he had long relationships with several of the Indian chiefs in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was recognized for his contribution to the community in that way. How do we think the pandemic has changed people's relationship to death, grief, and mourning? I think the pandemic revealed that we do not have sufficient practices to navigate loss. That particularly in the West, we don't know how to talk about it with each other. We don't know how to feel about it. It makes many of us like, fervent and deeply unsettled when we are having to navigate that on our own because we do not have many collective practices of grieving like a jazz funeral and a second line which is a cultural practice specific to where i come from Mm -hmm. that gives space for people to grieve and grieve in a loud way we live in a, in, in, a, in a society where we ask people to tamp down their emotions constantly. Mm. And in the pandemic, everyone was locked inside with themselves mm-hmm. and all of their feelings. And outside, most of the people that I know lost at least one person mm. that mattered to them and were not able to celebrate the life of those people 
So they didn't get the collective of we all going to show up to a funeral, mm, regardless yeah. of what tradition yeah. we follow. Yeah. yeah. But on top of that, there also wasn't the intercommunity support. Because that was completely cut off as funerals on a monitor screen. Funerals mm -hmm. on a monitor screen. And I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything less healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so much mental health damage coming from that. I think that also the pandemic brought out so much death. Mm -hmm. It it brought us to the tipping point. It's like, if, if it were just one person that we were navigating the loss of, we might be able to find ways to navigate internally on our own. But with so much death and so much collective death, even if you didn't know people, you were witnessing that around the world, yeah. so many were losing their lives and coming to terms with your own mortality mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. We don't give space to have those kinds of conversations. And I think that for me, the pandemic showed me how important the collective griefing process is, how important funerals are. It showed me how important it is to have people around you who are able to hold space for the variety of emotions that come up when you are grieving because we were all collectively grieving that our lives no longer looked how it looked before. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we were at, like, plenty of people were like, but if we just, but we just gotta go back to normal. But that normal can no longer exist. Yeah, that part. <laughs> There's a word in Portuguese, saudade. It mm -hmm. means longing for what once was and can no longer be. Mm -hmm. It is something that when I think about grief, I hold very close to me because there are so many things that we long for that can no longer be that's deeper than just melancholy yeah yeah um and and i'm glad that you brought that up because the way your culture celebrates it is it combats that melancholy because sometimes right. people can be trapped in that level of melancholy and it keeps them down but in the cultural way of new orleans it's like hey yeah we're going to take the time to grieve but we're going to be happy about, we're going to uplift the spirit, we're going to uplift people's emotions and stuff, and we're going to just celebrate this spirit that we have here, this this great person in front of us. I know, my family likes to eat yeah. Uh, yeah. during uh, funerals. Uh, the repast is everything. Mm -hmm. um, I, as a daughter of two worlds, because I was raised in New York, but my mom and, and my greater family is all down here in Florida, um, so she had two funerals, which a whole lot of people were like, what, she's gonna have two? And I was like, well, there's a lot of honorifics and a lot of people that she's touched their lives um, in New York, but her family is, is down South. So we did do two. And it is so common for somebody coming to our funeral who is not a family member to see uproarious laughter. <laughs> Uh, you know, because we cried at the funeral, <laughs> but you'll see us at the repast like an hour or two later, and we will remember the deceased. We will talk about them. We will tell stories about them, and we will share food. And I also want to just um, say that it was a privilege as a uh, spiritualist to be able to do grief work with you. Um, I was able to, um, a little bit before Maris came, um, I held a ceremony for my father 
asking the ancestors of his body to receive him because he had transitioned from uh, this plane. And it was a real honor to be able to do that grief work with you to make sure that your father also um, was received by his ancestors in that way. To me, that is a powerful affirmation of our shared cultures because I really do feel that Florida and New Orleans are like cousins. We're like spiritual cousins. <laughs> we're golf cousins. Um, but also that that um, spiritual bond between us to be able to both learn uh, together but also to aid each other in this grief process was super powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's something that my father would have wanted because towards the end of his life, he was very focused on the ancestors mm. and making sure that I knew whose I was and and why I belong to them mm -hmm. and the order in which lineage I come from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, knowing your folks, knowing who you would be asking to receive this person right. who gave you so much. It is to acknowledge that this person was given so much by generations that came before them. And my father, he was always wearing every day his 1619 hat, which on the side, it says ancestors. Uh -huh. And he loved that hat. And for him, like whenever, and in our household, we were like, man, like how Mars Jones Jr. just got up and left us. <laughs> and my mama, she said, you know, he going to be with the ancestors. Because, yeah. yeah. and they having an ancestor party up there. All of the people yeah. who, all of the elders in my life that I lost, from between 2020 and today, they're up there having that ancestor party. Yeah. yeah. And doing this work with you showed me that, hey, I have a role in helping to make this ancestor party be as celebratory and as connected and grounded in the lineages that continue to exist today. Mm -hmm. That work that I do, the continuation of my studies, continuation of the, the legacy that I was gifted. It reminds me how connected I am to those ancestors as well. Because yeah. once they leave this plane, their only reason for ever having existed in the first place was to aid and support you, right? And then when we pass on anybody that we leave behind, um, that is the charge for us that, you know, our whole existence yeah, is to make sure. Yeah, I in your shirt too, that my ancestors are proud. And I got hey, this shirt in 2020, right. Eliza Garza original. Ashe. <laughs> my mother used to say, know who you are and whose you are. Ashe. Right? That was super powerful. Any other last words before we uh, close out? Well, first of all, we like to dedicate this uh, podcast to the spirit of Dr. James Malone, um, who departed us on the 3rd of May to be reunited with his life partner, Dr. Ruby Malone. Ashe, and we Ashe. also call again the name of? Morris Jones Jr. Um, it's important in this time where we are told constantly in the greater narrative that black men are toxic, that they cannot head families, that they are destined for extinction or jail, that there are men who have held it down, that have loved a woman, 
that have created family, that have aided young women to grown womanhood and that we know who we are and are better for them. So I say again, Ashe, and I'm going to shout you out, Darren, because you you make it happen for us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. It is a pleasure. It's a pleasure having our guest today. Yeah. Thank y'all. Thank you. Tell us where we can find you to follow you or learn more about your work. If y'all want to learn a little bit more about my work, you can visit my website, www.gmarisjones.com. Gmarisjones.com is my name. Uh, Don't forget it. Because <laughs> your name is power and it's the mm-hmm. power of your ancestors continued in you. And, uh, and if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at, at Magical Practical Roots. Thank you, Maris. Thank y'all. Thank you, Maris. <laughs> and this concludes our episode of the Alchemy of Wellness podcast. Be well. <laughs>